At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than a life policy. It's about the promise and the responsibility that comes with being a new parent, being there day and night, and building a plan for tomorrow, today. For the ones you'll always look out for, trust Amica Life Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Previously on All-American. There it is. A win for the ages. It was a huge moment. Uh, Not to say that there were blacks playing golf, obviously, but symbolically, to win at the Masters, people were happy that this young black kid won. Less than a week after winning his first major championship in 1997, Tiger Woods was already being touted as a role model. Here's how NPR's Robert Siegel put it at the time. Last weekend, after his triumph at the Masters golf tournament, 21-year-old Tiger Woods said with some understatement, I think now kids will think that golf is cool. Less than a week later, they already do. Siegel is teeing up a segment here on All Things Considered, in which reporter Melissa Block visits an after-school golf program in New York City to explore Tiger's impact. A dozen children gather after class on PS207's cramped asphalt playground on a gritty Harlem street corner. Around them, classmates are jumping rope, playing ball, working on a dance routine. But these third, fourth, and fifth graders tee up and start hitting plastic golf balls into a circle drawn in chalk on the pavement. The first child in this story is a fourth grader named Sierra. She describes what it feels like to tee up a golf shot. I feel kind of nervous because I'm, I'm like Tiger Woods. I'm not exactly like him, but I feel like him because I can tell when he goes there, he acts very nervous, but he really gets it. See, that's why he's the champion. And when I grow up, I might be the champion. There's also a fifth grader named James who used to think golf was boring. But Melissa Block says seeing Tiger Woods changed his mind. I think he's rep- representing our people. As the first black man that I saw play golf. And he won the master tournament, yeah. I think I play well, too, but the way I swing. I think I swing like a real pro, but I'm not sure. I don't know everything about golf yet. Melissa Block doesn't say it outright in her reporting, but the implication here feels pretty clear. Tiger Woods isn't just a role model for kids. As a black man, he's especially a role model for black kids. But did Tiger Woods want this role? I'm Jordan Bell, and this is All-American from Stitcher. Season 1, Tiger. Hey, Albert. Hey, Jordan. So I wanted to start this episode with that NPR story because I think it really captures all the chatter surrounding Tiger right after his first big win as a pro. 
Yeah, the story definitely frames Tiger as someone who, at the time, was directly inspiring to Black children. This story feels like it's trying to contrast the urban playground with the greenery of the golf world. But it just comes across as a little condescending. (laughs) The way it describes the cramped asphalt playground on a gritty Harlem street corner. I mean, we both live in New York City. (laughs) And at least to me, I feel like most playgrounds here are asphalt and really not that roomy. (laughs) Even the ones that aren't in historically Black neighborhoods. Totally. Cramped And gritty, that sounds like every New York playground I take my six-year-old to. (laughs) And we we actually don't live far from the school in that story. Right. But in fairness, this NPR story is totally in step with other coverage from the time. Because once Tiger won that first Masters, he was instantly turned into a symbol, a trailblazer for Black Americans in the mold of other prominent Black athletes that came before him. And this pressure... It's followed Tiger throughout his career. So today, we're looking back at how and why the media has so often put Tiger's racial identity front and center. Yeah, we want to know, how has Tiger navigated this pressure? And the moments we'll draw on come from both print media and TV coverage in the early years of Tiger's career. Take, for example, the 1997 Masters broadcast we heard in the last episode. So he'll chase Jack Nicholas, but he follows Jackie Robinson as a man who broke barriers, men who transcended their sport. That's broadcaster Jim Nance narrating that first Tiger Masters win and bringing up a comparison to Jackie Robinson that Tiger will have to confront over and over again. Exactly. And by the way, I want to note for listeners that in the first half of this episode— Every piece of news media we're going to reference happened within roughly the same week in 1997 when Tiger won the Masters. And in learning more about the media pressure of that action-packed week, I began to feel like it's so unfair that Tiger automatically has to represent and stand for something much bigger than golf because of his race. White athletes aren't asked to do this. It's so much added pressure. And then, of course, in Tiger's case, this is where it gets complicated. It gets really complicated. Because, for starters, Tiger doesn't even want to be labeled as just Black. This is Episode 3, America's Son. call yourself? Do you call yourself African-American? I know you are. Your your father's half black, quarter Chinese, quarter American Indian, mother's half Thai, quarter Chinese, and quarter white. So you are, that's why you are America's son. (laughs) You are America's son. Yeah, um, I guess two things is Mm -hmm. that uh, I guess now that I'm on the Ryder Cup team, which we get to go over and um, play in Europe in September, that uh, I won't be representing the United States, I'll be representing the United Nations. Mm-hmm. It's a little different. <laughs> right. But cool. uh, no, the, a little, little funny thing is, growing up, I came up with his name. I'm a Koblenasian. A Koblenasian. Ka, Caucasian, blue, black, Indian, Asian. Koblenasian. That's what you call yourself? Yeah. yeah. 
Well, coming up, Tiger's father, Earl, is also here today. Oh, man, I love that Tiger's like, oh, here's this cute little thing. She's like, oh, that's what it is? Okay, commercial <laughs> commercial break. <laughs> yeah, she's kind of like, are you sure about this, Tiger? This, that's what you want to call yourself? <laughs> just listening to Oprah and Tiger, I, it's just a reminder that afternoon Oprah in the late 90s, I mean, that was as big as it gets. The biggest show he could be doing at this point. And the way he responds to Oprah's question on this huge stage, it's its just a little confusing. I mean, what is he trying to tell us? I think he's trying to say my identity. Well, it's actually complicated. Mm-hmm. It has a lot of parts. And it certainly confused the idea of Tiger Woods as this transformative Black figure. Yes. And it's what makes Tiger both so interesting and challenging to talk about. What's the right way to refer to Tiger's racial identity? And we've actually talked about this a lot, you and I, Albert, and our all-American production team. Yeah. Do we say Black? Do we say Black and Asian, multiracial? Or does it really just depend on the context? Right, because, yeah, Tiger is for sure Black, but that label doesn't account for his mother being Thai, Chinese, and Dutch. Mm -hmm. And even his dad, Earl, he was Black and, according to him, part Native American and Chinese. And here's how Tiger actually frames it himself. Quote, I never thought it was right or fair to think of me only as an African American, and I never will. But I learned that to have one drop of black blood in you in America meant that you were considered an African American. And that's from a book Tiger wrote about the 97 Masters a few years ago. And and Tiger's totally right. In America, if you look black, you're pretty likely to be automatically labeled as black, whether or not you have a parent of another race, or in Tiger's case, two mixed-race parents. Yeah, and I feel like American culture really does not know how to handle mixed-race identity. Not now, and certainly not in the 90s. We're more likely to flatten things and to try to put people into one box. For sure. Like, think about Barack Obama, the son of an African father and white mother. He's still considered our first black president, not our first biracial president. Right. Or even how Senator Kamala Harris, the Democratic vice presidential nominee, she's the daughter of an Indian mother and a Jamaican father. And I've noticed that in the press, she's much more often referred to as a black woman than a South Asian woman or even a multiracial woman. Totally. And likewise, in the public's eyes, Tiger was and is seen as just black. And in this Oprah interview, she brought up that the world sees Tiger as black by asking Earl Woods the following question. Although he may call himself ka blah. Cablasian, Cablasian. When people see him, they see a black face. Mm-hmm. They see a black man. Mm-hmm. How did you raise him to believe, or raise him to believe that he was of what race and belonged to what race? The human race. The human race. Because, as you know, I call, you know, I've I've called him America's son. Everybody wants him to belong to their ethnic group now. African Americans are saying, why doesn't he sit, call himself African American? Asian Americans want to know why isn't he Asian American? What would be your response to that? For me, I'm I'm just who I am. Mm-hmm. What matters is when you is, call one or the other, does it bother you to be called African American? Yeah, it does because uh, they say pick one. I can't. 
I find this moment so interesting. It's kind of like Tiger was trying to tell the world how he wanted to identify as Coblination, <laughs> but the world sort of said, like, nah, Tiger, you don't really get to identify that way. Yeah. And it, it just points to the history of what it means to be black in America, mm-hmm. just like Tiger referenced in his book. But, you know, w- one thing I keep thinking about is that Tiger, he's really young here. I mean, he's just 21 and probably like a lot of 21-year-olds, he's he's still figuring out who he is. When I was 21, as someone whose parents are from Taiwan, you know, when people looked at me and asked me, are you Chinese? It was always this question that on the surface was straightforward, but actually pretty complicated because of this very complicated political history that, at least when I was younger, I actually, I'd never really fully understood. And my answer would always be kind of stumbling and and pretty awkward. Yeah, sure. And race and labels are just complicated for me, too. Part of my family is Mexican-American. And if you go back, some of my ancestors were Mexican by way of Spain, and some were indigenous Mexicans. And the identity question of being Mexican or white still isn't that clear in my family to this day. I guess what I'm trying to say is that if Oprah started grilling me about my race and my family when I was 21 years old, I don't know what I would have said exactly or how it would have sounded (laughs) because it's just a hard question to answer. (laughs) Totally. And look, neither of us is black. Right. And Black people have obviously had a really complicated history in America. At various points in our country's history, being Black meant you were likely enslaved, or you were subject to Jim Crow laws, or you were or still are subjected to various forms of racism. Absolutely. And we're still grappling with racism in our country today. I mean, here we are in 2020. The Black Lives Matter movement and protests have obviously been front and center. And I mean, just look at all the NBA players who very recently sat out playoff games in protest over police brutality. Right. So when Tiger says he doesn't exactly identify as Black, you could argue that he's trying to distance himself from all the negative things that Black Americans have had to deal with for so long. And that might be why many Black people saw Tiger's Koblenasian comment as a rejection. I think to a lot of Black people, that was devastating. This is Howard Bryant. So, Howard, can we just start off by having you tell us what your name is and, like, short bio about yourself? Um, a short bio? Well, I'm old, so I'll just keep it short. <laughs> um, I've been with ESPN since 2007, and I am a... Um, sports correspondent for NPR's Weekend Edition Saturday. Howard is a commentator and an author. He's written extensively about Black athletes and activism. He's also been covering sports since Tiger Woods came on the scene as a pro. And when we spoke with him, Howard was very clear with us. Tiger's Koblenasian moment was hurtful to many Black people. When I heard that, it struck me. I didn't articulate it nearly as well then as I can now. It, it was really one of the first steps, one of the first steps to exposing just how anti-Black the sports world really was, where it was his way of saying, and this is the greatest golfer in the country right now, one of the most recognizable figures in the world. What he was really saying was, 
I can be the world's greatest golfer. I can be the most recognizable figure in, you know, in the country at the moment. I can be the inspiration to everybody, but I don't want to be black. I can be everything, but I'm not that. I mean, he's making a choice, right? And it's a big choice that he's making. Yeah, he's making a choice, but he's also telling you something. It's the fact that if you want to grow up in this country as an African-American and be successful, you're going to have to know how to navigate the white world. There's no way around it. It's just how it is. And in navigating it, everybody is constantly trying to use you to tell you that things aren't as bad as they really are. But you also realize how conditioned you are, too, to constantly deny where you're from to constantly deny who you are because nobody wants nobody wants it it's tre- it's treated as a negative now of course this is all howard's take from today looking back on this moment we can't know what tiger was thinking then but we do know that around this time tiger claims to only think about his race when the media brings it up to him and clearly the media is totally fixated on tiger's race like howard told us at the end of the day it made for a really good story Here's Howard. The greatest bedtime story in America is the racial happy ending, right? To, to end up at a rainbow at the end of the long, arduous journey where we overcome our history and overcome our differences and overcome race, class, gender, to overcome all of these different things. And what better place to do that than the black guy playing golf? The history of, the, of black, white race, black, white class, and golf is such an explosive combination. He's irresistible to, you know, to these forces. You have to talk about them, and he had to talk about them. When you're black, you've got to answer questions. When you're black, people want you to represent something. They want you to stand for something in a way that you're not asked to stand for it in, other, in other nationalities and other races. It's just how it is. And you got to decide what you're going to do with that. The decision is going to be made for you eventually based on your actions because the question doesn't go away. And that brings us to our next media moment. He's doing quite well. Pretty impressive. The uh, little boy's uh, driving it well. He's putting well. He's, he's doing everything it takes to win. This is a clip from CNN that leaked just one week after the 1997 Masters. And that guy talking is professional golfer Fuzzy Zeller. A reporter is asking Fuzzy about Tiger because it was clear Tiger was going to win the Masters that day. Right. And Fuzzy, he was middle-aged, white, and even pretty universally liked. But in that first clip, you heard Fuzzy call Tiger that little boy— and then he made another racist remark. So you know what you guys do when he gets in here? Pat him on the back, say congratulations, enjoy it, and tell him not to serve fried chicken next year. Got it. Right. <laughs> or collard greens or whatever the hell it is. Uh, it's a bad joke. A really, really bad joke. And Fuzzy, you know, he's saying that Tiger might insist on serving collard greens and fried chicken at next year's Masters dinner. Two foods that have a ton of racial baggage. Mm-hmm. And it's the casual way he says this and says whatever the hell they serve, like he knows that the white reporters and the people he's talking to, that they're all part of his world. Right. It's so arrogant and dismissive of Tiger. And remember, Fuzzy made this comment in the context of Tiger's performance at the tournament. Like it was totally unprompted. He couldn't even congratulate him. After his comments surfaced on CNN, Fuzzy apologized. Tiger, though, well, he was mostly silent. 
he talked to Fuzzy privately, but his public silence suggested that he just wanted this to blow over. Was it a harder or easier time to be an athlete who spoke out on racial issues in 1997? Well, they didn't. It's really difficult to accept. What we really want to do with the racial conversations is not talk about them at all. Is we, when we think about race in this country, which is why we use terms like colorblindness and not seeing race in the whole thing, what we're really saying is, is that is there a time when we can stop talking about black people? Uh, there are a few different places, a few different pockets where people actually spoke. But in 1997, 1997 is no different in some ways to, to 2008. In both of those moments, when Tiger Woods won the Masters and when Barack Obama was elected president, we heard the same conversations, the same word, post-racialism. Now, of course, we know that there's no such thing as a post-racial America. But many people had a vested interest in making it look that way. People like the president, Bill Clinton. Yeah, just a couple days after Tiger's Oprah interview, he got an invitation from the White House for an event honoring Jackie Robinson. You know, (laughs) only one of the most celebrated Black athletes ever. And Jackie Robinson's widow was going to be there It was a whole big thing. And Tiger declines the invitation to instead have a spring break trip to Cancun. Yeah. When I first (laughs) read about this in a New York Times op-ed by Maureen Dowd, which was called Tiger's Double Bogey, my first reaction was like, wow, Tiger skipping out on the White House and Jackie Robinson? (laughs) Like, come on. But then I watched the Masters 1997 footage And I started to get a little bothered with the media being so proud of itself for connecting Tiger and Jackie Robinson and then Bill Clinton piling on. And I was like, "Okay, (laughs) go do your thing, Tiger. Have fun in Mexico. They're just using you. (laughs) Right. It just shows you that it's kind of a no-win situation for Tiger. There's a ton of pressure from the president, (laughs) from the media, from fans, from everybody. And it's really hard to live up to that. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. And welcome to another edition of Larry King Live. It's a great honor to have Tiger Woods as our guest for the first uh, for the full hour. It's his first ever live sit-down interview. It's an honor to have him with us, and we appreciate his coming. But he was supposed to be with us last week, so the first obvious question would be, how's the back? Oh, the back's fine. Uh, what happened was, 
I was kind of doing a little cross training. I was running too many miles. In June of 1998, Tiger Woods appeared on CNN with Larry King. It had been a little over a year from that big media week we talked about before the break, right after Tiger's first Masters win. And at this point, Tiger hadn't won another major yet. He was actually recovering from a minor back injury and getting ready for his next major. But still, he was firmly established as the world's top golfer. And aside from Michael Jordan, Tiger, at 22 years old, he was the most famous active athlete in the world. Yep. In the interview, Larry King asks question after question, and Tiger is composed and even a little funny. Then come the inevitable questions. Did you ever think early on about why there were so few of your color in the game? I mean, did you, oh, were you too young? Or were you not no, conscious I, of I that? I realized it later on in life. Um, I always say late, not too late. <laughs> I'm not that old yet. But um, when it first hit home that um, I was not accepted when I was probably about f- five, four years old, four or five years old, when a guy at the golf course I was playing at, playing at four, at four years old, military base, came over to me and said, uh, he called me, called me uh, the N-word mm-hmm. and said, really? we don't allow any of you out here. And my dad was over on a putting green, and so he just kind of shooed me off. Went over and told my dad, and, you know, my dad came over, talked to him, had a little altercation, and next thing you know, I was kicked off and banned from the golf course because of the color of my skin. What did that do to you? You know, it, it makes you grow up. It makes you understand that people view other people in different ways, and it's not because of their personality, because they don't know them. But sometimes, unfortunately, it's because of the color of their skin. Now, prejudice is idiotic. Mm. When it happens to you directly like that, though, I mean, how do you emotionally deal with it? You know, it's, it's kind of funny, because, <laughs> I mean, no offense, but some white people like to try and get dark and tan. And unfortunately, it, it is part of our society, and it is there. But um, more than anything, that really inspired me. And those blacks on the tour, Charlie Sifford, it was, it was kind of Larry Elder. Yeah, and yeah. Lee, yeah. They had, Lee Elder, yeah. they had overcome oh my God. your predecessors, your Jackie Robinsons. Yeah. Larry King is referring to Charlie Sifford here. He was the first African-American golfer to play on the PGA Tour in the 1960s. And Lee Elder was the first African-American to actually play in the Masters Tournament in 1975. The tournament you won, the famed Masters, mm. blacks couldn't play it. Yeah. Not too long ago. Yeah, 1975 was the first time Lee Elder played. Yeah. Well, did you feel, was that part of that win too? Did you feel it sort of? I, when, I was yes. walk, when I was walking up 18, a number of emotions go through me, but one of them was, you know what? Thank you, guys. Black golfers before you? Yes. Hey, it's because of them I was there. So once again, Tiger is being asked to speak about so-called black issues. You know, I thought his answers here were fairly personal and certainly gracious to the black players who came before him. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. And the media doesn't just want Tiger to say something. Sometimes they want him to do something. In 2000, Tiger was set to compete at the MCI Classic, a tournament that takes place in Hilton Head, South Carolina. And at that moment, the issue of the Confederate flag flying over the state capitol building in South Carolina, it was front and center. The NAACP had pushed for a tourism boycott of the state until it was taken down. 
and a portion of the Black community and some activists, they really wanted to see Tiger join the cause. ESPN asked Tiger about it at the time, and his response, quote, I don't really have any comment. I'm a golfer. I'd rather just stay out of it. The one thing you can't be in this country is an advocate for black people. That if you look at the sanctions that come to you and you think about the navigations, whether you're talking individually or whether you're talking in terms of movements, the minute you discuss blackness, you become a pariah and the conversations turn dark. This is Howard Bryant again, who we heard from earlier. And Howard makes an interesting distinction here. He told us that even though Tiger was being constantly pestered by the media to talk about race, Tiger's response seems strategic. Because if Tiger had said anything remotely political on the topic of race, it would likely have faced pushback or even backfired. So Howard says he understands why Tiger avoids taking stronger stands. Well, it, it almost seems like a convenient way to go through the world. Yeah, I think so. And I, and I think that what you're really saying is, what, what are we navigating, right? I think to me, you have to start breaking down this question. As, as, you're, as you're driving this car through all these different winding roads through the forest, what is the forest? The, the, you know, what are we actually trying to avoid? We're trying to avoid what we saw happen to people who did take a, a positive stance in support of black people. They're trying to avoid being Tommy Smith and trying to avoid being John Carlos or trying to avoid the different movements that took place in the 1960s or whether you're talking about the Olympics or Kareem or whatever. Howard is talking about the history of Black athletes who took a political stand and faced considerable backlash. Right, like Olympians Tommy Smith and John Carlos, when they famously raised their fists in a Black power salute on the Olympic podium. The IOC president ordered their suspension from the Olympic team. And of course, Muhammad Ali, who was criticized for converting to Islam and for taking a stand against the Vietnam War. He was even banned from boxing for three years for evading the draft. But eventually, there was a new generation of Black superstar athletes who found a new way to navigate race and social issues. The OJ template was really an abdication of responsibility. The OJ template. Howard is, of course, referring to how football legend OJ Simpson, before the trial of the century, became a beloved American superstar. And O.J. was a Hall of Fame football player, a Hollywood actor, and he was the Hertz guy. Coming or going on a business trip, you've got no time to waste. And nobody knows that better than Hertz. Whether it's picking up or dropping off your Ford or other fine car. O.J. was uncontroversial, safe for white America. He even said, quote, I'm not black, I'm O.J. It's, it's essentially saying, leave me alone. It's saying two things. It's saying, number one, don't ask me about this. I don't want to be involved in this. I don't want to be involved in myself. I don't want to be involved in where I came from. And and I would rather not be engaged in this at all. And so that template, you know, there's a, there's a payoff to that template as well, because if you're looking at the hierarchy of sports, you, you really do have a bit of a distortion. I always refer to it as white owners, white coaches, white media, white season ticket holder, black player. So as much as we would like to call 
sports sort of this partnership and this sort of black entity. It really isn't. It's black labor. And everybody else you're talking to is essentially the same hierarchies as you have in other industries. And so you're trying to navigate that. They don't want to hear about your experience. And they certainly don't want to hear what you have to say about what's taking place in the ghettos. They want fun. And they rely on you to provide that fun for them. And I think the players get that. I mean, it's it's very easy if you're O.J. Simpson to see the difference between how people treat you when you're talking about race and how people treat you when you're selling cars and also what your what your bank account looks like when that happens and it it's it's a totally it's a it's a seductive seductive pathway and obviously it was perfected by Michael and Tiger as the money got bigger and the corporations got bigger and there was more and more influence Michael Jordan, during the height of his career, was careful not to take political stances. Quote, Republicans buy shoes too, was his famous line. And he sold a boatload of Nike Air Jordans. And Tiger is also a Nike-sponsored athlete and starred in commercials emphasizing his race. Which we'll get into much more in our next episode. But Howard makes such an interesting point about Tiger and athletes in his position. You made the commercials, you took the money, right? You positioned yourself as that person. And the country positions you as that person, whether you like it or not. Sports has always been positioned as this great antidote to racism, as the meritocracy. I score 149 points, you score 147 points, I win. And so that eliminates racism in some ways. And then you look at someone like Tiger Woods, who had to constantly sort of navigate his racial questions, and I took, I, I took issue with the idea that he did do that. I don't think that he really did. He didn't navigate being, you know, Cablin Asian. He navigated being black because nobody was questioning his Asianness and nobody was questioning his Thai mom or any of the other parts of his genealogy that are in there. It was the fact that somebody wanted that they wanted him to be African American, and he was resisting that. Good evening and welcome to the first and maybe only racial draft here in New York City. <laughs> Folks, this is for all the marbles. What happens here will state the racial standing of these Americans once and for all. This is a sketch from The Chappelle Show in 2004, where in the fashion of a sports draft, representatives from various races are choosing prominent celebrities to officially become part of their race. At this point, Tiger was in his late 20s with eight major championships under his belt. One thing remained the same. Tiger's identity was still in question. Hence, the racial draft of 2004. Well, Rob, some of the biggest names in sports and in entertainment are on the line tonight. And I'm excited to see who's going to be drafted by which race. Seated behind me on the stage there are the various representatives. And believe it or not, the blacks have actually won the first pick. Wow, that's the first lottery a black person's won in a long time, Billy. Yes, and I'll probably still complain. <laughs> Man, fuck you. Now, why don't we take a listen? We black delegation. Two Tiger Woods. No surprises there, The richest and most dominant athlete in the world. His father, black. His mother, Thai. Well, it doesn't matter anymore because now he is officially black. 
Dave, the Asians have got to be upset. There's no question about that, Robert. Dave Chappelle takes the stage dressed as Tiger Woods. And below him on the screen, it says, Tiger Woods, now 100% black. And then he offers a few words. Wow. Looking blacker already. Uh, I like to say, uh, tremendous opportunity for me. <laughs> Finally be part of a race, have a home. Been so confused by capitalization and so many things. So long fried rice, hello fried chicken. I love you guys! Uh, I always wanted to say this. For shizzle. <laughs> Well, it seems as though Tiger Woods is happy to be black, and that's a good thing, because I just received word that he lost all his endorsements. (laughs) That's really vintage Chappelle there, and he just totally nails it, this totally uncomfortable position that Tiger is in. Yeah, since Tiger doesn't really neatly fit into one racial category, the racial draft will force him into one. (laughs) Right, and in the same sketch, Lenny Kravitz gets drafted to the Jews, and the Wu-Tang Clan is drafted by the Asians. It's hilarious, and it's totally absurd, but it's also obviously getting at something very real. People talk about, oh man, you're out there not helping your own people. Well, who are your people? I mean, Tiger, Tiger Woods isn't from the Cabrini Green projects in Chicago. No, he's not you know, from the Taft houses. You know, he's not from these places. And so you do ask the question, why am I being asked to carry this? Why do I have to carry this? These are not necessarily my people, right? Who are my people? And so there's an interesting journey that, that follows. He simply likes to play golf. Golf and people say, oh, you're going to call golf a racist sport. No, the culture of golf is a racist sport. It makes it a racist sport. The sport itself is pure. Anybody can play it. It's simply the environment that you're placed in if you choose to play it. And, and I think that what ends up happening, that's why we sort of love these dramas, right? We love these sporting dramas because also he's got top-shelf, world-class talent to do something that very few people in the world could do. And so you start looking at that level of isolation. You realize Tiger Woods doesn't know who he is. Tiger Woods is in this massive search for identity. Where do I fit? And it's a very hard place to be. I think that really is sort of the central question for me is, you know, I've never met Tiger Woods. I don't cover golf. What does he actually believe? You know, what do you believe about this world? Let's take some calls for the great Tiger Woods, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Hello. Hello, Mr. King and Mr. Woods. Hi. Hi. Um, it's a real privilege to talk to you, Tiger. And my teacher and I um, often discuss golf, and we are wondering what is it like to be a role model, and do you ever find it to be quite a burden? Good question. That's a great question. Do I find it to be a burden? No, you I are don't. a role model. I, you know what? It, I think it's awesome. I really do, because it's not too often you actually get a chance to influence a lot of people in a good way. And if you had that opportunity, I think you should take it. I mean, anyone should be, anyone who's living should be a role model in some way, shape, or form. 
And if I'm in a position where I can influence more than one person, you know, I'm going to take advantage of that. Therefore, you think you owe the public more than just playing good golf? No. You owe them I, a stable life? You owe them no, what you... No, I don't you... owe them. I want to give back to them. That's, that's the, there's a big difference. Owing somebody seems like, you know, they've given a lot yeah. to me. All right. Do you feel that you're an influence on young blacks? Young children. Just young children? Yeah, young children. I Don't you think you've attracted a lot of more blacks to the game itself? I, yeah, I think I've attracted minorities to the game, but I think, you know what, why limit it to just that? Listening to this Larry King interview, which is over 20 years old at this point, I wonder what difference it would have made had Tiger really embraced that role that so many people wanted him to play, being a leader for black children, like we heard in that All Things Considered piece at the top of the show. Yeah, for all the kids who look up to Tiger because he looks like them, I wonder how they'd feel about him essentially saying, I'm not black. I'm this thing I call myself. I'm Cobblin' Asian. Yeah, and as far as this whole thing about inspiring black youth into the sport, there actually aren't any more black golfers on the PGA Tour now than there were when Tiger went pro in the 90s. But... Tiger's success has clearly done one thing. It's made him and everyone around him a whole lot of money. Next time on All American, Tiger and the Swoosh. How Nike turned Tiger Woods into not just a global icon, but the world's first billion-dollar athlete. And the very fraught moments along the way. All American is a production from Stitcher. This episode was written, reported, and produced by Albert Chen and me, Jordan Bell, with additional production support by Temi Fagbenley. Gianna Palmer is our story editor, consulting production by Stephanie Kariuki and Abigail Keel. Our executive producers are Daisy Rosario and Chris Bannon. Casey Holford is our mix engineer, and he also wrote our great theme music. Thanks to Nick Dooley for being a Pro Tools whiz and to Baudelaire Seuss for lending his ears, time, and perspective to this episode. Special thanks to Peter Clowney and our fact checker, Kelvin Bias. If you like our show and want to help other people find it, please rate it and write us a review. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen. If you have thoughts or questions you want to send our way, please do write us a note to allamerican at stitcher.com. That's allamerican at stitcher.com. Thanks. Is it swoosh or swoosh? Swoosh. 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 Yeah. swoosh. swoosh is when you make a basket. Which no. one did you, what did you say? You I said, said the no net or all, nothing but net one. Yeah, you said that. Stitcher. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.